Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Laura Ramirez, the Program Coordinator at Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, the first international non-governmental organization working to oppose human trafficking, prostitution, and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation. She is also an organizer with The Firm, a national organization of women engaged in transnational feminist, anti-imperialist activism, and dedicated to the fight against oppression in all its forms. Laura speaks to us today about the ways in which healthcare policy, and in particular COVID-19 or the coronavirus, acutely impacts women, human and sex trafficking, prostitution, and pornography. We will explore the ways in which the global demand for prostitution puts women and girls at particularly high risk of harm and exacerbates systemic gender disparities in income, wealth, mobility, and health outcomes. Welcome, Laura. Thanks. Hey, Terry. How are you? I'm okay. This is, I think we're in what, week three of the lockdown in New York City? Yes. It, time is, it doesn't exist anymore, so I don't really know, but I think that sounds about right. Thankfully, you and I met before the lockdown. Yes, thankfully, and now we have things to do to keep us busy because, you know, <laughs> maintaining sanity these days is a struggle, that's for sure. So you work for the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, C-A-T-W, and you also are a member of Affirm. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Affirm New York. I'm part of our New York chapter. The Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, it's the first international non-governmental organization to uh, actually combat prostitution, commercial sexual exploitation, and how that looks like for women all over the world. And the firm is a feminist organization. We focus on a lot of different issues, especially since the experiences of women worldwide aren't confined to one thing, right? Women's oppression manifests differently in different places through different types of oppression, whether it's economic systems, militarism. Um, but one of our uh, issues via our Purple Rose campaign is the sex trade, and it has a lot to do with the experiences of migrant women and the histories of women in the U.S. as a result of U.S. colonialism and U.S. imperialism. So it's just an example of how everything is a feminist issue. So it's not just uh, the sex trade isn't a firm's only issue, but it is one of our largest issues for sure. In particular, within the sex trade, sex trafficking and human trafficking, can you talk about what the difference is? I think a good definition for human trafficking is the definition that's outlined uh, under the Palermo Protocol, which is a UN resolution specifically on human trafficking. Um, And when it comes to sex trafficking specifically, What is important to know in the Palermo Protocol definition is that trafficking does not necessarily need to involve movement, right? So a lot of people watch, I don't know, they watch Taken or something, and they think that the way that sex trafficking looks is getting abducted off the street and being thrown into a van, and then you're chained to a radiator. Uh, But that's not what it looks like, especially here um, in the United States when it comes to domestic trafficking. A lot of the times 
women are, um, and I say women because um, over 90% of women that are involved in human trafficking are involved for the purposes of sexual exploitation, but uh, there are other folks in the trade as well. Obviously, it's a, it's an industry that preys on vulnerability. But a lot of the people inside of the sex trade have the liberty to, like, you know, go shopping or something. But it's about the economic, mental, emotional, and and overall control that traffickers and pimps have on the individual, right? So it's not this chain to a radiator situation. And that's really what we need to um, demystify when it comes to trafficking altogether. I was at an event, I think it was sometime last summer, and there were people of different genders talking about how they were victims of sex trafficking. And both of them actually, um, the two survivors in the group specifically talked about how they were victims within a relationship. So their pimp was their partner who coerced them to, um, to who prostituted them. So, so is, is that what you mean by how you don't need movement to be a victim of sex trafficking? Yeah, so what I mean specifically by you don't need movement is you don't need to be picked up from point A and moved to point B, right? You could be trafficked by, de- you could be legally trafficked in your own home. Um, and a lot of people uh, will actually try to argue against this legal definition. Um, It's folks that will probably get into this a little bit later, folks who talk about um, being in the trade uh, willingly. But the reason this definition is important is because it really, it really illustrates how it's a trade altogether. You know, it's not like a person is willingly sex trafficked. Like the the examples that you just gave when it came to people who were coerced by a significant other, a lot of those have to do with economic control, right? Or, or emotional control, you know? It's sort of like a Stockholm sy- Syndrome situation. You know, we work with a survivor um, here in Queens, actually, who she was pimped out by a lover boy situation, which is really common at the age of, I think, like 14, because, you know, she she was raised by a single mother. She was raised in poverty. She didn't have the economic or emotional support. And this pimp came in and filled that void, thus creating a dependency relationship that's, you know, very easily, which is very easily exploited. So, yeah, it's all too common, and that doesn't necessarily need to involve cr- crossing a border at all. And does trafficking also necessarily include some sort of financial transaction? So, for example, if my significant other forced me to have sex with other people under threat of violence or some other threat, but he wasn't getting any money or he wasn't receiving any money, w- would that still be considered sex trafficking? The, the crime of, tra- of sex trafficking is the, the rape of the individual, right? So uh, when, it co- when push comes to shove, ultimately, one cannot consent to their own exploitation, uh, nor can they consent to being raped by a stranger, right? I think you bring up a really interesting question because it brings up the question of money equaling consent sort of thing. So what you described is really interesting because if you take money out of the equation in a lot of these circumstances, it looks like rape, right? If you, if a person is being forced to 
you know, be physically penetrated by a stranger that they don't know that they don't want to be, you know, involved with, everybody would call that rape. So why is it that once we throw $20 on top of it, it's all of a sudden a trade and there's a political conversation attached to it? Was it autonomy? Was it not? No. If you take those $20 away, it's very clearly a rape situation. And that's what sex trafficking is about. That's what the crime of sexual exploitation is. So I want to get back to what you mentioned earlier, which is the statistics around global sex trafficking and how sex trafficking victims globally, 90% of them are women and girls. So clearly, this is a gendered problem, like many others that you and I are dealing with. And yet, there's a term that neither of us really like, namely, quote unquote, sex work that is being used to define this problem. And so talk about what that term, you know, means to you. Yeah, there, so there's two things that you mentioned um, that I sort of want to talk about. The first is how this is a gendered crime, right? This is 100% a gendered crime because the sex trade exists as a result of uh, male entitlement, male sexual entitlement to female bodies. And the other thing is when it comes to the trans community, the sort of individuals who are in the trade we see are trans women, you know, so it is a gendered crime. It's a gendered crime of male entitlement to women and femme bodies, right? So this is very, it's such a binary. It's very, very clear. Um, so that's the first thing I would say, because the trans community is also, unfortunately, overrepresented in the sex trade. And unfortunately, a lot of folks uh, like you, who you mentioned, who describe themselves as sex workers, so now we'll segue into that conversation, use the term sex work, which was politically created to sanitize the system of exploitation. And they're using this to sort of give credence to the fact that trans women are overrepresented in the trade. But this this can't be the case. You know, the fact that trans women are overrepresented in the sex trade doesn't mean that the sex trade is inherent to trans women's existence. It means that we all obviously have a social problem where economic, political, and social systems are failing people who have vulnerabilities, and as a result of this, have to end up in the trade. So um, this, the term sex trade in itself uh, was created back in the 70s, like I said, to sanitize the industry, to politically position it as a form of work so that people can talk about it through the labor rights lens. And that's particularly problematic because it shifts the conversation entirely. Uh, what does sex work even mean, right? When when they talk about sex work, that could be a pimp, that could be a trafficker, that could be a person who does camming, who never has to interact with a sex buyer, a person who does stripping, which we know uh, strip clubs are a popular avenue for funneling women into prostitution. So what does that even mean? You know, the, the term sex work is really muddy. And when we talk about the sex trade, of course, we're talking about the global multi-billion dollar industry that exists to serve male sexual entitlement, but prostitution specifically, right? That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about people who, I don't know, sell nudes on Patreon or something like that. Of course, those things are related because they're serving the same, the, the same premise that is male sexual entitlement. 
But selling your nudes on the internet is a whole lot different than having to physically see, smell, touch a sex buyer, you know? And that's, that's what makes the term really dangerous. That's why we have to ref- be really specific in what we're talking about and refrain from using umbrella terms like sex work because ultimately people die as a result of that gross generalization. What word or what phrase would you use in its place? Uh, that's, well, that's, we can brainstorm that together. <laughs> I think the, again, the term sex work is brilliant. It's politically brilliant, you know, and we need, um, we like to say prostituted people, um, because that's the truth. Uh, prostitution is, is something that happens to people. It's not a crime that somebody does. It's a crime that is done to someone. Um, prostituted people, we like to say, you know, people, women of colonized experience, you know, the sex trade has a history and legacy of colonialism and slavery. So let's call it what it is. Those words are a lot uglier than sex work, but it's the truth. I know that commercial sexual exploitation is used, but it's that sounds a little sanitized as well. For me personally, I would like to take the word sex out of it and use some phrase that includes the word slavery, forced slavery or coerced slavery, something like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I agree with you. So we always say uh, sex work is neither. Sex work is neither sex nor work, because if it feels like work, then it's probably not sex. And if it's sex, then it's not work, right? So that makes a lot of sense. What I personally have been workshopping is uh, fiscally coerced penetration <laughs> because that sounds really ugly, but it's also really long and doesn't uh, fit on a tote bag as nicely as sex work does. So I don't know how far we're going to get with that, but it's right. It's and one it, that it, I like it doesn't cover all of the activities, um, penetration that could be coerced sex- yeah. and, and fall under that umbrella. Yeah, we can workshop that together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. So let's talk about the the bill that was proposed in New York City last year to decriminalize prostitution. And there are those who were for the bill, and there are those who opposed it. And the opposition favored something called the Nordic or the equality model. What is that? And how does it differ from full decriminalization? So there's three kinds of legal approaches to this, although most people only think that there are two, which is decriminalization and legalization. So we oppose both of those. Why do we oppose legalization? Because obviously we should never legalize the sex industry for all of the reasons that we've already said. Uh, Why do we oppose the decriminalization of the sex industry? Because when we decriminalize it, it it makes it a free-for-all, right? There's no legal consequence or repercussions for the actor for the bad actors of the sex trade proponents of full decriminalization say that they prefer this model because it decriminalizes the folks who are engaging in the trade so folks who identify as sex workers um and we agree with that notion right folks who are in the trade should not be Uh, arrested. You know, prostituted people should not be arrested. Like I just said, prostitution is a crime that happens to somebody as opposed to a person committing a crime. So where do we go with that? So being that we agree, both agree with that premise that individuals in the trade should not be arrested, the difference between us and full decriminalization folks is that we prefer an approach that's called the equality model. So the equality model 
maintains that prostituted people are not arrested, but it also maintains the legal consequences for pimps and traffickers. And this is important because it is an approach that seeks to reduce the market, right, by attacking the demand. And it also provides exit strategies for people who are in the trade, which time and time again, we've seen when it comes to direct service providers or folks who are on the ground, when they ask people, would you be doing something else if you could? The answer is a profound yes. You know, almost 100% of the time people respond with yes, because people are in the trade The majority of people who are in the trade are in the trade as a result of need, as a result of precarity. The Nordic model offers exit strategies, uh, health services, educational services, paths towards um, legal citizenship so that they don't have to fear. They don't have to fear being uh, criminalized for the position that they are put in. However, we can't pursue a feminist future without holding the people who do harm responsible. And the people who do wrong, do do harm, are sex buyers 100% of the time. You know, so it's not, you know, a lot of people who, who support the full decriminalization model say that the laws are killing people, but that's not true. The law doesn't kill people. Sex buyers kill people. You know, every time we mourn another person in the sex trade who was killed, it was by a sex buyer every single time, objectively. And that's because we can't be sure of what a sex buyer will do once the door is closed. And that's why we should never fully decriminalize because that's actually enabling harm. You know, it's not harm. It's not harm reduction. The equality model is harm prevention. I was thinking when you were talking about the gendered aspects of trafficking, sex trafficking, and how trans women more more trans women than trans men are being victimized and being prostituted because they present as femme. And that sounds to me, I hadn't actually thought about the, the demographics in terms of trans men and trans women, but it sounds to me that it's related to the fact that trans men can present as men, right? And And so they can do things potentially in this world and have access to opportunities that someone who presents as femme, whether you're a woman, a cisgendered woman, or a trans woman, may may not have access to because of systemic discrimination. Of course. And ultimately, what it comes down to with regards uh, to trans women in the sex trade is male entitlement. You know, um, men are entitled or under patriarchy, they feel that they are entitled to women's bodies. So that that's the overwhelming trend that we see in the sex trade. And it's it's really unfortunate, you know, because a lot of trans women who are in the trade say that they're in the trade, you know, because they don't have uh, housing or because they need um, access to health care. These are all systemic problems that we shouldn't say then to trans women the rite of passage for you to live your truest and best self is to be raped by a stranger. You know, we as organizers and people who want to see a feminist future, which means one where women do not have to be chained and victimized by the various uh, manifestations of patriarchy, 
for us to say that we are feminist organizers and then also say, yeah, but you need to get over this hump of male violence to then be your best self. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's not a feminist approach to condone the sex trade at all. It's, it's vehemently anti-feminist. And I like to say that those are pro-men feminists because they're not pro-women. As a pro-women feminist, you would insist on women's liberation without exception and definitely not the exception of the sex trade. So I am going to make a suggestion since we're brainstorming. <laughs> How about we call them pro-men fake feminists and, and the other side <laughs> pro-humanity feminists? I think pro, we say it again, pro-men fake feminists. <laughs> and then pro-humanity feminists because oh those of us who are trying to liberate women are trying to liberate all of us from right. patriarchy. We should write all this stuff down. <laughs> and trademark it once we're done. <laughs> Since we're talking about people who are, there's a huge movement, as you know from your work, of people who call themselves progressive, whether it's people who are organizers, community organizations, even elected officials, right? Some of whom sponsored this bill for New York City. How do they reconcile in their head? Like, what is their rationale for supporting something once they've heard your argument? I can't imagine how there's still justification. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think we should ask them what their rationale is, you know? Um, because once you hear the stories of survivors, once you employ a global approach to the issue, it's so obvious. You know, it's so obvious that Western individualism, which would actually give validation to the concept of self-empowerment over collective harm of women as a socio-political class, is behind a lot of the justifications for their argument. You know, again, it goes back to uh, the harm that was done in the 70s with coining the term sex work, which a lot of people grew up on, right, hearing that term and now can only visualize it through a labor perspective. That That's really, really hard. You know, over in Spain, I think last year, they were sex, a so-called sex work union tried to be established. Like, can you imagine a union where strip club owners and pimps are in your union? Like, which union is the boss in? That doesn't make any sense, you know? Um, and I, I mean, I also have that question, Terry. Seriously, I do. I don't know how they can rationalize it. I think a lot of it is reactionary politics as opposed to employing a global lens and also a macro lens to the issue because it's easier to do that. It's easier to be a reactionary. It's easier to pass Band-Aid solutions that, you know, masked as harm reduction instead of doing a bigger analysis of the issues. And that also requires a lot of self-reflection too, because the thing about patriarchy and misogyny is that these systems are so insidious that they infect our line of thinking too. Same goes for capitalism. You know, all of these systems have infected us and that's how we then think it's exemplified in the term sex work in itself that we could even accept, you know, an economic exchange for rape as a valid labor movement. 
Um, and that's hard, you know, it's really hard. And I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of people would rather take the easy way out when it comes to a lot of these things. So I really don't know the answer to that. I know why it happens, but I don't, I still don't know how we can, you know, it's, it's the most regressive progressivism there is. So what about, let's look at the actual people who are being prostituted. They experience, they're saying that, if you don't allow me to do my job, if you impact the demand for my job, I will be at risk of homelessness and negative health outcomes, and this is my only way of survival. How do you respond to that? There's a couple of things that you touched upon, because, and you know, it's that's how it is with the issue of prostitution. It's it's a multifaceted issue, um, and the first thing you mentioned was was health, right? That's interesting because the health effects of prostitution are so widely recorded short and long term. But for some reason, we haven't recognized it as a global health crisis, right? The immediate health consequences of the sex trade versus the long term consequences include uh, anxiety depression, uh, PTSD. A lot of women who are in the sex trade actually have PTSD that mirrors that of combat veterans. Women who are infertile as a result of the physical harm that the sex acts day after day after day have done to them. You know, when we read this laundry list of side effects, it's so clear that prostitution itself is a is a health crisis. So I can't imagine somebody trying to defend prostitution through a healthcare lens. Um, In terms of homelessness, that is an issue that disproportionately affects women and children, right? Especially when we see high rates of single mothers who are forced into the trade. That's a massive problem. And that is why uh, through the equality model, we would have exit strategies and pathways towards, you know, getting healthcare, getting housing, getting education, because we are not against, and by we, I mean abolitionist feminists, we're not against the sex trade so that women can, you know, stop getting money this way, and then you're, then you're on your own. You know, this is what I mean by we have to look at it as a macro issue, because that's exactly what it is. You know, we don't want women in positions of vulnerability, right? But the sex trade itself is also a form of violence. And we shouldn't deter vulnerability using violence. It just doesn't make any sense. So in terms of homelessness, I do think that we need to organize for for rent. I mean, if you ask me personally, I think that housing should be free. Housing is a human right. But those are the things that we should be organizing around, right? As opposed to organizing for the sex trade. Because the thing is, if we justify one woman in the sex trade so that she can pay her rent, then we justify every woman being in the sex trade. Then every single woman has a a dollar sign on her, and that's furthering the problem that we already have. I agree with you, and I also think that, on the one hand, we need to address the systemic sexism and misogyny that shows up in our policy that keeps women from getting parity in terms of wage and building wealth equal to men to the extent that yes we can even if we were to which i hope we can pass the era the equal rights amendment and have some sort of enforcement mechanism we still also have people saying well 
under capitalism, everybody, quote unquote, prostitutes themselves to their job in some way. There's some trade-off that we're making. The silliest argument. (laughs) There's no difference between us deciding to sell my body versus to sell my mind and work for, let's say, you know, whatever, the uh, military (laughs) and create bombs. Yeah. How do you respond to that? I mean, this this is this is another example of reactionary thinking. I mean, it's so. First of all, I, I personally, this isn't you know the position that uh, the organizations I work for have, but I personally am not a big fan of global capitalism. Obviously, not because it uh, exacerbates all of these systems of oppression. Nevertheless, work, even under a socialist system, isn't inherently bad. Work is a good thing. We do need to work to produce a society that we could all live and thrive in. But comparing the work of, say, a janitor who cleans schools so that children, the next generation of brilliant minds, can learn is so different than the sex trade. Because if we, if we even compare those two, then we're saying that, you know, cleaning schools is on the same tier of importance as the male orgasm. That's completely unacceptable. And yes, of course, there's always going to be exploitation under capitalism because the nature of capitalism is exploitive, but the jobs inherently are not exploitive. Jobs are necessary, but a system based on male orgasms is not necessary. That's not, it's, it's, it's totally a silly argument with all due respect when I hear it, because you have to assume that male orgasms are socially necessary. You know, it just, it really doesn't, especially considering that to, uh, to reach that male orgasm, a entire, uh, you know, sect of women an entire, uh, class of women, basically, the prostituted class, um, have to be exploited. That, that really, it, it, it almost makes me laugh when I hear that. You know, we started the conversation uh, talking about the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. And I know you've been really busy <laughs> responding to the the industry's response to this pandemic. I, I read just one or two articles about it, but the articles were basically in favor of people who worked in the quote unquote sex industry who wanted support and protections because they weren't able to work. And so can t- tell me about some of the industry's response to this and and what you're doing as a result of it. Yeah, well, the the interesting thing about the COVID uh, crisis with regards to the sex trade is that it sort of proves our point, right? A lot of folks on the other side like to say that no matter what we do, there's always going to be a demand for sex buying. But first of all, we argue that that's not true. Uh, we There are several examples, um, whether it's Examples based in decolonization, where there are native tribes who don't even have a word for prostitution in their language because it didn't exist before the colonizer came, or more modern examples like in you know Sweden, say where they passed a uh, education campaign, and now you know men in Sweden are more embarrassed, would rather be caught drunk driving than buying sex because they it's so abhorrent, it's such an abhorrent thought to them to even buy a person. So. There are examples of that prove that sex buying can be deterred. And COVID is sort of an example of that, you know, 
men aren't going out to buy sex. Um, and a lot of people in the industry are suffering as a result of that. But it also brings up the question of how does one social distance with within the sex trade? It's impossible. You know, there's no way to social distance or to keep a, you know, healthy physical barrier between you and a buyer. And isn't that the problem? You know, isn't that uh, an issue it, it goes back to all of the health problems that we talked about previously and again it, it's really unfortunate that more and more women who enter the train the trade as a result of economic necessity are now struggling economically right that is a massive problem but it's a global problem that we're all facing it's not just particular to the sex trade, if anything, it's proving our point about the sex trade. You know, we should, once this is all over and once, you know, the dust settles, we should move towards situations where if this ever happens again, women, regardless of whether they're in the sex trade or not, are promised healthcare so that they can be treated if they, you know, access, the, if they come into contact with the virus so that they have rent, st- uh, rent stabilization so that they don't have to worry about how they're going to pay rent the next month. Um, things that will actually really, uh, result in social stability as opposed to uh, male violence masked as some sort of way out. I understand with regard to one-on-one transactions in terms of prostitution, But what about pornography? Because, you know, one can still social distance by being a consumer of pornography. And Pornhub has certainly grown a lot, I think, during this crisis um, in terms of offering, you know, free free premium porn and and trying to update its image by, by donating free masks to healthcare workers across the world. Yeah. But we know that there's trafficking in the production of pornography. And so you can still social distance and consume. And I don't know what the numbers are from in terms of Pornhub, whether the demand has even gone up to replace the decrease in in-person prostitution. Yeah, that's a real issue that we're seeing, especially with OnlyFans. I don't know if you've heard of that website, but no. it's OnlyFans. Yeah, um, it's a uh, website that any individual can set up an account on and produce pornography uh, for subscribers and members and all of that. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's something that we're seeing. That's what happens, right? That is the sex trade's response to the COVID crisis. But again, it all feeds the same thing. It feeds male sexual access to women. You brought up Pornhub, and it's really interesting because Pornhub giving out masks or Pornhub, like I know they did a pan, uh, campaign a couple of months ago about like saving the planet and something like that. It's really funny when a website that's based on folks submitting whatever they want, which includes pornography and footage of trafficking, takes on this position of like social savior. It's really sad, actually. Um, Pornhub has been not only accused, but also they've been proved proven to post vile footage of, of reported cases of rape of uh, cases of stalking, of child pornography, of people who were under, who were confirmed to be under uh, trafficker control. And that's because Pornhub just, you can post whatever you want on that website. 
So in reality, this website should be taken down um, 100% for facilitating crime. Nevertheless, though, when it comes to porn, yes, there is a massive increase. I know that uh, Pornhub Italy gave all its Italian citizens like a premium membership or something like that. I mean, it just goes to show how even in times of crisis, like women and their social status, just they continue to be subordinate. You know, that's the only thing it can illustrate, like, yeah, we're all stuck inside, but at least we can still consume women so that we know what to do once we're out. It's it's really sad to watch, actually. I also read somewhere that there's, in terms of exploitation, uh, there's a um, increased either search for or desire for videos that include COVID somehow, where there's you know, someone is directly infecting someone or someone's, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I just came across that very quickly. And so the fantasy of infecting someone. Yeah. And this also, I mean, it just, it makes sense, you know, I mean, look at domestic violence situations, right? Right now we're in a time where women who live with their abusers cannot go to work. Sometimes work is a temporary escape for women in DV situations so that they can be away from their abusers, uh, from just be away from their abuser. And now a lot of women and their children have to be quarantined with their abusers. And as we see throughout history in times of crisis, male violence goes up and male violence is not exclusive to just physical violence in the home. It also transfers uh, into sexual violence and digital sexual violence. And right now, you know, we're still sort of in the beginning of this. I know it doesn't seem that way because time doesn't exist anymore. And it seems like we've been quarantined for a year. But I am afraid that as this goes on, you will continue to see more aggressive male behaviors. And that's something that we really need to look out for. And as we continue to crown Pornhub as the martyrs of COVID, we actually have to realize what harm is being done. You know, if a woman is walking down the street to go to the supermarket and, you know, the streets are empty because nobody is outside, we're talking about situations where men who are watching that video that you just described of uh, and bypassing the COVID risk and infecting her with COVID anyway, women are in more precarious situations now. You know, that could easily become reality. It sounds ridiculous, but we've seen this time and time again. I mean, in the Super Bowl, right, large sporting events become a hub for DV and trafficking. Why would a global crisis be any different? And speaking of the Super Bowl, I just read the reason for that, which I wasn't sure of, but I wanted to confirm. And apparently it's because when you have large groups of men together, there's a greater likelihood of exploitation. And I'm saying that because it's like, it's so obvious, but it's also so sad. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So one other thing that we need to talk about when it comes to COVID and the sex trade is discussing whether or not buying sex or going to strip clubs is even an essential service because there are reports in in places like New Zealand where you know sex buyers were going into strip clubs with masks on but um you know nurses don't have masks and stuff like that so we need to talk about what positioning that industry has in society and if we look at it the right way we'll see that it really shouldn't have much of a place there So before we close, there's one bill that you mentioned before our our conversation 
that I want to just call out because we had a previous episode in the body literacy series where we talked about fertility for women and it's the Child Parent Security Act and this is in New York State. Back in that episode, I had shared the bill and the opposition to that bill being passed and I wanted to remind listeners what the risks are now that that bill has been passed. And if you could start with describing it briefly and then the negative outcomes that you envision. The bill is called the Child Parent Security Act, which would, I mean, there's a lot of parts to it, but to make a very long story short, it would fully legalize commercial surrogacy. And the devil's in the details with this, right? Because first and foremost, the background checks for the intended parent are little to none. The residency requirement for women who are going to be intended surrogates is a very short time, I think six to nine months, which is literally nothing. And the bill, actually, the language of the bill is copy and pasted, like verbatim, from a surrogacy company. And you could see it online. If you look up the company's website and look at the bill, the language is the the same. So there's a lot of corporate interest and corporate involvement in the Child Parent Security Act. But with regards to how this affects women particularly, basically New York has um, made it legal for poor women to be guinea pigs. You know, that's the only way I would describe this bill. Um, What this means is that if anybody, not even a couple, because there have been stories of surrogates, surrogate parents who are single parents, living in very, very low-grade homes, paying for a poor woman to have a child for God knows what reason. What this bill means is that any person who has an extra thousand, couple thousand dollars could pay for a poor woman to be injected with a host of cancer-inducing hormones uh, to be subject to this under-researched but high-risk science for what? To have a baby. And what is the what is the reasoning behind it? People are saying that people have a right to have a genetic family, but don't women have the right to not be guinea pigs for a corporate in- industry? You know, this it's 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 the question that we always see. Do women have rights? <laughs> you know, do are do are women protected from the harms of the industry? And when it comes to the sex trade and when it comes to surrogacy, we see the answer is no. So before the bill was passed, wasn't there surrogacy already? Well, there was altruistic surrogacy is a thing, right? And and but altruistic surrogacy is a lot different than commercial surrogacy because altruistic surrogacy is like, you know, let's say my friend wanted to have a baby, but she was infertile and I knew how much she wanted to be a mother. And I said, all right, I'll do this for you out of the goodness of my heart because you're my best friend and I want to do this for you. That is a much different bond than a contract. Because the bond between a surrogate mother and intended parents under full commercial surrogacy is nothing more than ink on a pen. It's a contract. And we've heard dozens of stories of women, uh, women of color particularly, who had wealthy white intended parents. And the white intended parents would use racial slurs against the mother and not pay for any of the mother's uh, needs while she was pregnant with their surrogate child. And then the mother gives birth and the child is yanked away from the mother. It's, it's an overall 
physically and emotionally traumatic experience. And we have just sanctioned it as a market, as an industry. Just go go crazy. It's going to be a free-for-all of the industrialization of women's rooms. What about people, celebrities like Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Kardashian? They've famously had surrogate children or children born through surrogacy. Wasn't there some sort of commercial transaction there? Why was that legal? I mean, I don't know those cases particularly. I imagine that a lot of these folks live in California, maybe. But I mean, those people sort of give an example of who are surrogate parents. The surrogate parents are people with significant wealth. They have a lot of money. Surrogacy is not cheap. Um, But the money that goes into the surrogacy process is not seen by the surrogate mother, you know? And the money in itself, it goes back to uh, the issue of prostitution in a way, because does the money itself or the sanctioning of a market where that money can even be exchanged, does that excuse the harms that women encounter when they're going through the surrogacy process? I mean, there are stories, uh, girls, young girls who are 20-something healthy, brilliant young women who sign up to be egg donors and, you know, die within five or 10 years from unexplained cancers. And we're talking about women who have never had health issues to begin with. And that's because, I don't know if you're familiar with the process of egg donation um, or to be a surrogate to begin with, but you need to be injected with a lot of hormones so that you produce, I think, like, up to 15 uh, times the number of eggs in one cycle. So you, a lot of times women who are going through the process get something that's known as um, hyperovarian syndrome, which is deadly. You know, it could be fatal. We're talking about a science that has not been researched enough for us to now pass industry-driven bills on women's health. This sounds a lot like, you know, when you were talking about, I I mean, I'm aware of this bill from the uh, support that celebrities such as Sarah Jessica Parker um, have given it. But in the worst case scenario, getting back to the sex trafficking um, conversation, you know, if there's no regulation at all, I can imagine how someone who's interested in child sex trafficking would want to use a surrogate to create children to then traffic them and put them into child pornography or whatever it is to create, you know, some sort of mechanism for um, earning money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I could also see, um, traffickers and pimps who control women in the system of prostitution sort of offering being a surrogate as a break so to speak to you know get off of get out of prostitution and become a surrogate like it's just it's a market and a lot of people are going to be entrepreneurs (laughs) uh, for lack of better words and they're going to abuse it that's without a doubt and you know what's interesting about you know celebrity you hearing this from like Sarah Jessica Parker and stuff the U.S. is one of the few countries to have full commercial surrogacy. It's been banned in so many, in more in more than most countries, I think full surrogacy is banned because they recognize how harmful this is and how dangerous and how under-researched this, this entire thing is. And it's we're talking countries where like, relatively speaking, women aren't even, women, Women are are still still face a lot of um, oppression in these countries, but still their their governments recognize that full surrogacy is 
deadly and 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 unacceptable, but the U.S. doesn't. It's just very strange. I think the European Union, uh, India, Thailand, they've all banned full commercial surrogacy. I just don't know how we got here. And I think the only explanation for it is the influence of people with massive wealth and industries. And unfortunately, those groups run America in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, So it's just a reflection of our priorities and our priorities don't involve women's rights. A lot of the what I've heard and read about why women are reluctant to leave beyond the coercion and the financial factors are the cultural ones in terms of being stigmatized, that they won't be able to enter society and some sort of have some sort of economic role that, you know, that they'll be able to access because of their history. And so it's really interesting how there's this dichotomy where on the one hand, people are sort of legitimizing it and calling it sex work. And yet that's the same reason that people don't want to leave because they are also are self-stigmatizing. And, you know, getting back to the the bill for decriminalizing, it lacks just as much in terms of regulation as the Child Parent Safety Act, I heard, because any home, any domicile can be turned into a brothel and there were no restrictions around advertising. So you could have advertisements on the subway or on buses that promote prostitution as a job to, to girls. Right. And we've, we've seen that, you know, we've seen the, there was something that a sex work advocacy organization here in New York had um, an exhibit and they were advertising all over the subways thanks to a healthy fund from open society foundations which also funds the global sex trade so yeah these people have access to massive wealth because there is vested interest in securing sexual access to women uh so people want to put their money behind it and they do and we see that so the same thing is going to happen with surrogacy, I believe. I mean, we don't we don't even need to go very far to see that this is true. We can just look at the language of the bill and see that a, a literal corporation wrote this. So at the end of the day, we just follow the money, right? Where is the money? It's all behind the sex trade. You know, it's not with survivors of prostitution who are talking about how harmful their buyers are. It's not talking about survivors of the sex trade who say, yeah, I did this to pay rent, but I wish I didn't. I wish I, I wish college wasn't so expensive. I wish this, I wish that. I wish I could live a life, you know, decently without having to be exploited by the male gaze. You know, it's follow the money and you'll see it's not with us. Is there anything we can do now that the bill has been passed to try to minimize the harm to women? Yeah, I think uh, the the surrogacy issue in New York is a, is a massive upset. But I don't think that we should, you know, just I don't think we should give up too soon because the full decriminalization bill is still on that that fight is still on. And I'm happy to say that a lot of advocates with the New Yorkers for the equality model, which involve direct service providers, lifelong activists, um, lawyers, you name it, survivors, primarily, you name it, they're with us, we have put together a bill for the equality model that we are excited to introduce 
to the New York uh, Senate very soon, hopefully. But that is what I think we should rally around. You know, we've seen how ferocious the fight is legally, especially when you have mega corporations behind it. But that doesn't mean that we can't go against it. And it means that we shouldn't go get because, you know, how many suffragettes were there? How many women did it take to start the global feminist movement? Just one, just a couple, you know. So if we all um, rally together and not let something like surrogacy get us down, I think that we could, you know, come out of this a lot stronger. And um, we'll set a precedent in New York if we pass the equality model here uh, where, you know, corporations will not win. They will they may win a few battles, but they won't win the war. We're definitely going to be including those links. So please share them with me. Yes, absolutely. So Laura, we're at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest the same set of questions that I've adapted from inside the actor studio called the engendered questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What's at stake? The, the lives of our sisters. I mean, I think it's, it's that simple. When we think about male violence and we think about patriarchy and oppression, we have to remember that those things are not natural. The tagline for a firm's organizing is decolonized feminism because when we're, when we're talking about decolonization, that is removing these systems of oppression that have been imposed on our sisters both here and abroad. We see that things like patriarchy are not normal. You know, those things are not inherent to our existence. So I think remembering where we came from is at stake, the lives of our sisters are at stake, and also remembering where we're going. And that's to a feminist future where women are not the exception. What gives you hope? Oh, oh, the same thing, my sisters. I think um, this fight is so hard. Oh my gosh, I think every day we look at each other and we think we're over this. Um, But again, There's a lot of us and we are lesion, but the power of money and influence is not on our side. And yet we win. And how insane is that? How insane is it that a group of 15 fierce feminists um, in any given state of the U.S. with nothing but a couple dollars in their pocket can make waves and change laws? That is what gives me hope because I've seen it and I intend on continue doing it. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We need to do more reading. (laughs) We need to do more reading. Um, I feel like every time I read a reactionary argument, it's something that could easily be debunked uh, if if you just do your basic women's rights reading. Read revolutionaries, read activists, read freedom fighters, step away from BuzzFeed, read people who have done the good fight and why they're doing it, because you'll get a lot of wisdom and a lot of guidance. And um, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them. So we definitely need to do a lot more reading. We need to do a lot more reflection. Um, And this especially goes to, I don't know how large your um, male listener audience is, (laughs) but this definitely goes to the men in our lives. Um, Patriarchy has emboldened men in such a way that certain violent behaviors are inherent to their attitudes and their behaviors. 
And I think men need to do a lot of self-reflection. You know, it's not easy, but for you to be a feminist ally, uh, because that I believe is, is all men could be or allies to the feminist movement, it requires a lot of humbling and that's really hard. I know we talked about pornography briefly, but when it comes to that issue, when it comes to the sex trade, I think a lot of men can get on board. But from my experiences, the final frontier for them is pornography, because we as a society have justified things like ethical porn or feminist porn. But if you can apply the same concepts of industry and oppression onto the sex trade, you could do the same for pornography. Um, So that is definitely what we need more of. And we need more sisterhood, you know, we need more um, women who are, who want to be feminists, but not the fun kind. And what I mean by that is a woman who adopts like one of the boys feminism, what I call pro-men feminism, things that feed right into misogyny and patriarchal expectations, but making it pink and therefore making it feminist. We definitely need more sisterhood. And that's going to mean coming off as, you know, a a B word sometimes. (laughs) But if we don't have one another's backs, then what do we have? Read Andrea Dworkin, read Audre Lorde, (laughs) and uh, join a firm. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Laura. And I look forward to sharing all the resources that you've touched upon with our listeners. Thank you so much, Terry. This was lots of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.